This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On an early summer night in 1966, a dinner party was underway in the opulent Beverly Hills home of a celebrated film producer, As the producer regaled his guests with gossip about Rock Hudson's lovers and Elizabeth Taylor's affairs, a horde of party crashers was headed their direction. 23-year-old John Griggs and his infamous motorcycle gang, the Street Sweepers, rode along the asphalt of Mulholland Drive in search of fresh excitement. There were rumors circulating that a film executive held a large quantity of drugs in his refrigerator. When they arrived at the producer's mansion, armed to the teeth with pistols and shotguns, they found the fancy Tinseltown dinner party in progress. John and the masked men stormed the party and robbed the house at gunpoint. But it wasn't cash or valuables they were after. It was LSD. The host was so relieved that when the men left, he ran to the driveway as they sped off and cried after them, Have a great trip, boys. Around midnight, the gang climbed higher and higher into the mountains above L.A. before coming to a halt. They passed around the LSD, each man swallowing four times the normal dose. By the time the sun burst across the sky at dawn, John and the men were floored, their eyes wide. They threw their guns into the brush and renounced all acts of violence. John could feel love flow through him. He felt divinity pumping through his veins. This is it, he shouted. This is it. (laughs) 
I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. Welcome to a special crossover episode of Cults and Kingpins. Today, the show where we delve into the world of cults, their practices, and their leaders and followers, meets the show where we tell the stories of organized crime leaders and how they rise to the top of the underworld. We're joined today by the hosts of Kingpins, Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. Thanks for having us. We've brought Kate and Howell on today to explore the history of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, a psychedelic cult and international drug ring. We'll also delve into the life of the Brotherhood's key founder, John Griggs. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love was a drug cult and underground smuggling syndicate that operated in Southern California from 1966 to 1973. The organization had over 200 members at its peak, most of whom played a key part in the dealing and smuggling of psychedelics. In today's episode, we'll dive into John Griggs' early life and the events that led him to create the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. We'll also take a look at the cult's early years in the 60s and its foray into the illegal drug trade. In part two, we'll follow the Brotherhood as they evolve in the 70s, rapidly growing in influence until ultimately facing their downfall. And while part one of this crossover will be available on both cults and kingpins, part two will run exclusively on the kingpins feed. To find it, simply search kingpins on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point, with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, Muhammad Ali's ban from the boxing ring, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. To their followers, the leaders of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love were holy men, spiritual warriors. But to the authorities, the Brotherhood was little more than a network of drug dealers and scam artists corrupting America's youth. In reality, they were both. They were psychedelic outlaws. Christened the Hippie Mafia by Rolling Stone magazine, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love helped usher in a new wave of drug culture that shaped an entire generation of young Americans in the era of the Summer of Love. Despite their brief period of activity, the Brotherhood pulled off more in seven years than some crime rings accomplished in generations. In just a few years, they became a global smuggling and LSD manufacturing operation, all while remaining off the FBI's radar. They accomplished this by operating in rural areas and by using a series of cautious and elaborate smuggling techniques. 
The Brotherhood began in Laguna Beach, California. But at its height, the gang's operations stretched to the Hawaiian Islands, Mexico, the metropolitan centers of Western Europe, and even as far as Afghanistan. They were one of the foremost drug dealing operations in the United States and collected millions of dollars by producing LSD and smuggling marijuana and hashish. But to John Griggs, money was nothing but a means to an end that funded the Brotherhood's true calling, evangelizing the transformative power of LSD. This was a philosophy rooted in the teachings of Timothy Leary, a former Harvard clinical psychologist turned psychedelic advocate, who later became a key figure in the Brotherhood's leadership. But before he took his first dose of acid, John Griggs was just a scrappy kid from Oklahoma with an awkward stutter and an appetite for destruction. He was born John Merle Griggs on August 6, 1943, to a working-class family in Dallas, Texas. Not much is known about John's family. However, when John was very young, they moved to Oklahoma. There, he picked up his distinctive Oki accent. In the mid-1950s, the Griggs family left Oklahoma for Anaheim, California, where John spent his adolescence. John would call Southern California home for the rest of his life. John, or Johnny as his friends called him, was known by classmates as a short, wiry kid with bright blue eyes and a mischievous grin. He would wear his dark hair slicked back in a pompadour, Elvis style, channeling a sort of rebel persona made popular by actors like James Dean. He spoke fast and tended to stutter, but his wit was sharp. Johnny could size people up in an instant and had an innate sense of what they were capable of. Johnny was a champion high school wrestler and always looking to start a fight, though you'd rarely see him throw a punch. Johnny was known to walk up to a guy he didn't like, usually someone much bigger, and begin insulting him. If his target took the bait, Johnny's friends would jump in and finish the fight for him. This was a trend throughout Johnny's adolescence and early 20s, a kind of vicious love for chaos, and it was fueled by his ability to rally groups of followers who would support his decisions without question. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. This sort of destructive behavior that Johnny and his friends carried out as teenagers, like inciting fights for little to no reason, can be explained by the concept of groupthink, a term introduced by Irving Janis in his 1972 book, Victims of Groupthink. Groupthink is a psychosocial phenomenon that occurs when a highly cohesive group is so concerned with maintaining unanimity that they fail to evaluate the consequences of the group's leader's decision. Many groups, including cults, corporations, and even governments, are in danger of falling into groupthink due to pressure to conform. This is often created by an illusion of the invulnerability of the group as a whole. Johnny's known skills as a fighter and champion wrestler surely helped with that sense of invulnerability. If the group had Johnny, they believed they could never lose. And with enough guys around him, Johnny almost never did. 
This provided Johnny and his friends a sense of mutual protection and, of course, a feeling of belonging, a feeling that was strengthened every time they encountered a scuffle and won. By putting their necks out for each other, they only strengthened their bond and thus their likeliness to fall into groupthink. Johnny's friends were willing to follow him anywhere, even if it meant living outside the law. The group that would become the Brotherhood of Eternal Love started as a local street gang. In 1958, Johnny and his friends formed the Blue Jackets, putting a name to their tight-knit group of delinquents. With Johnny's charisma and knack for organizing their otherwise anarchic group of friends, he naturally became the Blue Jackets' leader. Robert Ackerley, a former member of the Blue Jackets, said of Johnny, He took over everything. He gathered everyone around him like Johnny Appleseed. He just grew followers. The Blue Jackets cruised through town looking for trouble. They'd pile into a car headed to Disneyland, jump the fence without paying admission, and then hunt down members of rival gangs and beat them up just for being on their turf. And when they weren't fighting, they were honing their skills, literally kicking cigarettes out of each other's mouths. Before peace and love, it was pure fisticuffs. In 1960, Johnny met the girl who would tame his wild side, if only for a moment. Johnny was 17 when he met 15-year-old Carol Horan on the very same Orange County beaches where he would build the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. A pretty brunette with striking eyes, Carol and Johnny kept exchanging glasses as they caught sight of each other down the sand. For perhaps the first time in his life, Johnny was nervous. But Carol learned that the sweet, shy boy she met on the beach had a very different reputation. Carol's friends warned her of Johnny's thirst for trouble. Still, she was smitten, and they fell recklessly in love. Despite Johnny's fierce affect around his gang, he and Carol had a very tender relationship. Johnny cared about her deeply, and Carol adored Johnny. Carol and Johnny were friends for months before Johnny asked Carol if she would go out with him. When they finally kissed, Johnny seemed almost scared. He told Carol, I was so nervous, you know. I had everything banking on that kiss. In 1961, Johnny graduated high school. That same year, on Carol's 17th birthday, she found out she was pregnant. The young couple's parents rushed them to Las Vegas for a shotgun wedding. Because Carol was still underage, her parents signed the marriage contract. Johnny and Carol's first child, a son named Jerry, was born a short time later. The young family bought a small two-story starter house in Fountain Valley, a suburb in Orange County, their slice of the 1950s American dream. But fatherhood couldn't tame Johnny Griggs. The peacefulness of suburban life only strengthened his natural thirst for chaos. After high school, Johnny left the Blue Jackets to start a new gang, the Street Sweepers. The Street Sweepers was an infamous car club that would hold impromptu amphetamine-fueled drag races while wearing German army helmets. When they weren't drag racing, the Street Sweepers would throw eggs at people on the street while cruising around town. In just a few short years, they graduated from petty crimes to small-scale robberies and from amphetamines to heroin. 
Despite his criminal activities, John managed to hold down a job with Anaheim Parks and Recreation as a trash collector. But Johnny hardly attempted the role of straight-laced citizen while on the job. He'd drive around town in a garbage truck, smoking enormous marijuana joints, rolling down the windows to yell bizarre greetings at passing strangers, like, hello, I love you. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, discoveries were being made that would change the course of Johnny Griggs' life. Harvard University psychologists Dr. Timothy Leary and Dr. Richard Alpert were conducting experiments on a little understood, naturally occurring compound found in mushrooms called psilocybin, more commonly known as magic mushrooms. Coming up, Johnny Griggs has his first encounter with psychedelics. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In April of 1962, Prominent psychologists Dr. Timothy Leary and Dr. Richard Alpert were pioneering a project at Harvard University they called the Good Friday Experiment. The study involved 20 Harvard Divinity School students. Ten of them were given a naturally occurring psychedelic compound found in mushrooms called psilocybin, while the other ten were given placebos. Both groups were given doses before Good Friday church services in order to test the drug's ability to enhance a mystical or spiritual experience. The results spoke for themselves. According to a 2015 essay in The New Yorker entitled The Trip Treatment, those on the placebo sat sedately in their pews while the others laid down or wandered around the chapel, muttering things like, God is everywhere and oh, the glory. Eight of the ten graduate students who received the drug reported mystical experiences, while only one of the other ten students reported any spiritual effects. The conclusion was clear, but surprising. Psychedelics can effectively help induce mystical experiences. Leary and Alpert were floored by the results. The effects of psychedelic drugs had never been extensively studied by researchers, and the strong, spiritually transformative experiences the participants reported were unexpected. Leary and Alpert continued their research, experimenting with other psychedelics, including mescaline and LSD. And soon, the respected Harvard psychologists wanted to experience it for themselves. Once Leary and Alpert truly understood its effects, It didn't take long for them to grow impatient of the restraints objective science put on such a remarkable drug. For example, regulations on when, where, and how psychedelic drugs can be distributed. Leary and Alpert didn't want to wait for the scientific community to get on board. They believed they held the key to radical change. They had to tell the world. During psychedelic sessions with drugs such as peyote, mescaline, psilocybin, and LSD, Consciousness can contact the evolutionary wisdom 
which resides inside your cells. And so they started preaching the psychedelic gospel. Unfortunately, this didn't go over as well as they planned. By 1963, Leary and Alpert were both dismissed from Harvard after Leary abandoned his teaching duties and Alpert was found administering psychedelics to an undergraduate student off campus. But news of their research was spreading across high society in the Northeast and they soon found benefactors in the wealthy Hitchcock family, heirs to the Mellon family oil fortune. Leary and Alpert took up residence in the family's Millbrook estate, a grand mansion in upstate New York, where they continued to conduct far more casual experiments with LSD and other psychedelics. Timothy Leary, in particular, became a sort of prophet of 1960s counterculture. He began giving speeches on the mind-expanding abilities of psychedelics, speeches that were being heard by young people like Johnny Griggs. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Leary's mantra, turn on, tune in, drop out, started a movement. Countless youth across the country dropped out of school, quit their jobs, and headed to California, the center of the burgeoning hippie subculture, to drop acid. But Johnny Griggs didn't have to go anywhere. The psychedelic movement came to him. Early in the summer of 1966, Johnny stumbled across an article in Life magazine profiling Leary and Richard Alpert's Harvard experiments with psychedelics and LSD in particular. Johnny was fascinated. He was generally down to take almost anything put in front of him. Booze, marijuana, speed, heroin. But LSD was supposed to be different from everything else. And Johnny had to try it. At the time, roughly five to seven doses of LSD could be bought for $35 to $50 total, around $300 to $400 today. It was more than Johnny or any of his friends could afford. But when he heard rumors about a movie producer who kept a large stash in his fridge, he saw his chance to try LSD for free. Johnny got organized, rounding up the street sweepers and an array of guns. They roared into Beverly Hills, and the rest was history. As dawn broke on the hills above L.A., on the first night that Johnny dropped LSD, his first thought was of his wife, Carol. He had to get home and tell her how much he loved her, how he could feel that love coursing through his body. By the time he made it home in the early morning, Johnny was out of breath, his eyes wide and wild. He told Carol he had a realization. He was going the wrong direction in life. He was done with violence. He was done with heroin. He had seen the face of God. And it was technicolor. This sudden transformation isn't as strange as it may seem. In fact, one of Timothy Leary's Harvard experiments on psilocybin examined the effect of psychedelics on released prisoners. The study's results suggested that prisoners treated with psilocybin were less likely to reoffend than those who were not. This may be explained by psilocybin's potential to trigger serotonin, a key neurotransmitter responsible for an individual's ability to experience empathy. According to a 2002 study by Sina Faisal and John Dinesh, 
47% of male and 21% of female prisoners demonstrated signs of antisocial personality disorder, which can impact a person's ability to feel empathy or guilt. However, in their 2017 study entitled Effect of Psilocybin on Empathy and Moral Decision-Making, researchers Thomas Bacorny and others found that individuals treated with psilocybin demonstrated significant increases in emotional empathy. This increase in empathy is possibly what deterred prisoners in Larry's experiment from falling back to their old criminal ways, and Johnny and the street sweepers from falling back to theirs. After experiencing acid, all of the street sweepers swore off violence and threw their guns into the mountain brush. Most of those men would become founding members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Two-thirds of the men and women who would join the Brotherhood of Eternal Love had previous run-ins with the law. LSD changed the course of their lives. It inspired them, and John Griggs devoted himself to spreading that inspiration. In that same summer of 1966, Johnny began to drop acid regularly. He would often go up to the mountains for day-long psychedelic sessions with his good friends and former street sweepers, Michael Randall and Glenn Lind. They became tripping buddies, and their circle was rapidly expanding. Johnny, Michael, and Glenn tried to recruit as many friends and acquaintances as they could. One day, Johnny invited his good friend Chuck Mundell to trip with him at his home in Fountain Valley. Chuck said that as they sat in the living room, he saw what he could only describe as a color wheel slowly rotating in the air. Chuck went into the next room, still seeing the color wheel, and asked Johnny to try to read his mind. Johnny described to him exactly the same rotating color wheel that Chuck saw before his very eyes. They were communicating, Chuck had said. They went outside and sat in Johnny's car, and the windshield melted right before his eyes. But while Chuck Mundell's experience was more classically hallucinogenic, other members of the Brotherhood had more spiritual and philosophical revelations. Edward Padilla described his first experience with LSD as a light turning on in his head that unleashed the knowledge of the universe and the energy that flows through it and ties all living things together. Edward said, It traveled through my body, into my bloodstream. It was just incredible. This spiritual epiphany that Edward described is known in psychedelic literature as an ego death. In his 2010 book, Orange Sunshine, author Nicholas Scow explained that during ego death, an individual realizes the insignificance of their petty worldly concerns and feels for the first time a powerful and humbling connection to a greater life force in the universe. It's something Timothy Leary described as a philosophic confrontation. The LSD experience cannot be understood as anything but a philosophic confrontation. What is real in this spinning universe of realities, of varying space and time dimensions? Leary and Richard Alpert discussed ego death at length in their famous book, The Psychedelic Experience. The book was a keystone of the psychedelic movement and based on the sacred Buddhist text, The Tibetan Book of the Dead. 
As the Tibetan Book of the Dead prepared monks for mortality and reincarnation, the psychedelic experience attempted to prepare those taking psychedelics for the first time how to handle the experience of ego death and rebirth. The book stated, That which is called ego death is coming to you, a complete transcendence, beyond words, beyond space-time, beyond self. There are no visions, no sense of self, no thoughts. There is only pure awareness and ecstatic freedom. It's as though God has taken you by the hand and led you through the door of sleep, through the door of symbol, through the door of senses, into the heart of his workshop. Since Leary's discussions of ego death in the 1960s, scientists have begun to explore the impact of psychedelics specifically on the brain, hoping to discover how they're able to produce such so-called mind-expanding effects. In a 2014 study entitled Enhanced Repertoire of Brain Dynamical States During the Psychedelic Experience, a research group led by Dr. Carhart Harris and Professor David Nutt found that psychedelics put the human brain in a kind of waking dream, a state of activity that usually only occurs when we're in deep sleep. During this study, the brains of participants under the influence of psychedelics were observed to be literally slipping into unconscious patterns while the subject was still awake. These patterns included increased brain function in areas associated with emotion and memory, such as the hippocampus, and a decrease of activity in areas of the brain associated with high-level thinking and sense of self, like the frontal lobe. Psychedelics had unlocked a state of the mind usually only accessible during sleep, and with it, a level of thinking unmired with self-consciousness and more heightened in its emotion. A reaction that sounds almost exactly like the ego death Leary described in The Psychedelic Experience. If psychedelics can produce such dramatic results in the brain, we can imagine the impact they had on Johnny and his followers. It reinvigorated them with new purpose, and they were ready to take that purpose as far as possible. That summer in 1966, Johnny continued to recruit everyone within his social circle, whether they were street fighters or surfers, into a like-minded tribe of young people bound together by the spirituality of LSD. The street sweepers had disbanded, but that didn't mean they stopped their illegal activity. It's what they knew best, after all, and they were good at it. They simply traded in their violent crime for something more in line with their newfound values of peace and harmony they began dealing marijuana and LSD. Johnny and many of his friends even quit their civilian day jobs to focus on dealing. It was the beginning of what would grow into a full-scale drug operation. When they weren't dealing, Johnny and his tripping buddies went out regularly to surf or to the mountains to drop acid. But Carol, surprisingly, wasn't part of Johnny's new life as an enlightened LSD user. She was resistant to all drugs, and at the time, a young mother to a toddler. She didn't even smoke cigarettes. But as Johnny's involvement in psychedelic spirituality began to evolve, he became convinced Carol needed to be a part of it too. And one day, she finally agreed. Johnny took Carol out for breakfast. 
They ordered scrambled eggs and orange juice, and Johnny dissolved a dose of LSD in Carol's glass as she looked on. The whole world came crashing down on her. Carol felt as if she had tapped into a universal truth, and once she had the ability to listen, she saw how materialistic her desires had been up to that point. She didn't want her slice of the American dream. She didn't want the two-story house in Fountain Valley or the picket fence. She didn't want any of it. She wasn't the only one. Johnny and Carol started speaking to their other friends who expressed an urge to get out of the city. They talked about pooling their money from dealing and buying land together. They could share a couple of houses in the hills away from the city. While the group discussed their plans of a communal life, Johnny felt a need to meet the man responsible for inspiring them to embark on their new path. Late in the summer of 1966, Johnny traveled to upstate New York to meet the 45-year-old Timothy Leary. Johnny looked to Leary for guidance, revering the older man like a guru. But when the two met, the admiration was mutual. Leary was taken with Johnny's energy and charisma. He described him as an incredible genius. Although unschooled and unlettered, he was an impressive person. He had this sparkle in his eye. He was good-natured, surfing the energy waves with a smile on his face. Leary and Johnny struck up a friendly mentorship from that moment forward. Johnny would playfully refer to Leary as Uncle Tim, and Leary advised Johnny on his path to psychedelic enlightenment. Leary and Griggs spoke of psychedelics as a form of religious sacrament, like Christian communion. If John Griggs was the Messiah of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, Timothy Leary was most definitely its designer. Leary urged Johnny to take his dream of communal living one step further, start a church. This seemed like an excellent idea to Johnny. When we return, John Griggs and the first members of the Brotherhood legally established themselves as a religion and set off to settle their first LSD commune. Now back to the story. In October of 1966, Johnny and approximately 30 of his friends formally established a church. They called it the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, a name one of the co-founders thought of while tripping. But establishing a church had more than just a ceremonious purpose for the Brotherhood. It was also strategic. Just 10 days before, LSD had been made illegal in the state of California. By registering as a church, the Brotherhood was able to find a loophole in LSD's prohibition. Because the Brotherhood claimed LSD as a ceremonial sacrament in their church's worship, similar to Catholics taking wine at communion, they were afforded some legal protections that allowed them to seek religious exemption from LSD's illegal status. Thus, the Brotherhood continued dropping acid, whether the authorities liked it or not. With registering a religious organization came the formality of also stating the religion's objective, and the Brotherhood's spiritual foundation was diverse, to say the least. Many of the brothers were brought up in Christian households, and given their backgrounds as reformed criminals, Jesus' message of forgiveness and redemption resonated with them. But their primary focus was on Eastern religious concepts. They drew inspiration from Buddhism's Zen philosophy, 
The concept of the karmic universe from Hinduism, as well as from the teachings of India's yogis. But they also took their cues from the Native Americans' traditional use of peyote and vision quest ceremonies. Ultimately, in the Brotherhood's Articles of Incorporation, they stated their objective as, quote, to bring to the world a greater awareness of God through the teachings of all true prophets and apostles of God, and to spread the love and wisdom of these great teachers to all men. We believe in the sacred right of each individual to commune with God in spirit and in truth as it is empirically revealed to him. But unlike many of the religions the Brotherhood drew inspiration from, their new psychedelic faith didn't believe in a spiritually omnipotent figure, a pope with a prescribed dogma. They all referred to themselves as disciples, with Johnny's status of leader being more of an unwritten truth known universally among the brothers, rather than a formal position. And just as there was no formal leader, there were no real rules for joining, no ceremony or ritual, just one basic tenet, to take as many psychedelics as possible. Around this time, the brothers also registered as a corporation. Johnny chose a follower, one of the only brothers without a criminal record, to walk into a lawyer's office and complete the paperwork to incorporate the brotherhood. Now, as a tax-exempt entity, they left their old lives behind and began laying the foundation for their drug-trafficking empire. In the early winter of 1966, just a few months after registering the Brotherhood as a church and corporation, 23-year-old Johnny and 21-year-old Carol left their life in Fountain Valley to pursue a more enlightened one. They had only spent one brief year in the little two-story house in the suburbs, but for them, it was long enough. Carol took the house keys back to the bank that held the mortgage. She told the clerk that she and Johnny didn't want the house anymore. The clerk was baffled and asked, what do you mean you don't want the house? But Carol merely left the keys and walked out. They had a higher purpose now, and it was calling them to the ocean. Almost immediately, Johnny, Carol, their three-year-old son Jerry, a dog, and four of their good friends moved to Laguna Beach, 30 miles south of Los Angeles. Tucked between the ocean and the sandstone hills, Laguna Beach was a liberal stronghold in the otherwise conservative Orange County. The progressive outlook and cheap rent made it the obvious place for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love to lay down their roots. The brothers found an old church in Majeska Canyon, just a mile from the beach, and decided the canyon would be the Brotherhood's center. It had poorly paved roads and just a single street lamp, but they found a series of four white-painted houses next to each other. It was perfect. They lived in three of the houses and sold drugs out of the fourth, designating it their business headquarters. As more and more brothers moved to the canyon, they spread across two blocks that they called Dodge City. It was a beautiful and weird utopia. They would take acid every week in groups of four, gathering for small ceremonies to take a hit at sunrise while reading Leary's The Psychedelic Experience. Their values were pacifist, cerebral, experimental, and sexually liberated. 
There was no shortage of free love in the Brotherhood. They'd organize frequent orgies called group groups that members would participate in while tripping. It was considered a sacred sex rite. But the brothers insisted the free-flowing psychedelics and the regular group sex were more than just a party. They were finding themselves. And others were finding them, too. They recruited young people in Laguna Beach, even taking in runaways as young as 12 or 13 years old. The brothers took them under their wing and renamed them childish nicknames like Sunshine and Thumper. They grew their hair long and walked barefoot. Many of the brothers were surfers, and surfing became a core part of the brotherhood's spiritual identity. Being in the ocean was like submerging themselves into the life source of the earth, a sort of communion with the waves. They called it Christ in the Curl. They experimented in communal self-sufficiency, growing their own crops for vegetarian meals, weaving their clothes from natural materials, and building their own structures. And as the small community grew, they even learned to deliver babies. But the Brotherhood was cultivating more than just crops. They were growing their knowledge of psychedelics. They got better at trafficking, and their network of dealers grew along with their reach. The brothers cultivated relationships with new suppliers who provided them with full kilos of marijuana, as opposed to the odds and ends they had previously been dealing. They began distributing LSD that they acquired from secret labs in San Francisco, where the hippie scene was booming. The Brotherhood's goal was to spread LSD across the world, but in reality, they were selling their psychedelics mostly to young people. At the time, there is a saying among the youth of the hippie movement, don't trust anyone over 30. Selling to anyone older ran the risk of their drugs getting in the hands of narcs and undercover agents, whereas teens and 20-somethings were flocking to the California coast, seeking to be turned on by a psychedelic experience. After years of leading his street gangs through petty crimes, Johnny knew the rules of running a criminal enterprise. Now 24 years old, he was ready to lead the rapidly growing operation. As the business expanded, he proved he had what it took to lead what was becoming a full-scale underground drug ring. Members of the Brotherhood were drawn to Johnny's easy yet powerful persona. It inspired a steadfast loyalty and confidence in his decisions. When Johnny had a request, the brothers listened without question. Much like his days in high school starting fights, under Johnny's leadership, the brothers felt as if they were under a sort of divine protection that made them invincible. The drug deals kept getting bigger and the money kept coming in. They were making regular hauls, transporting kilo after kilo to the swarms of young people across California who were searching for enlightenment. It wasn't unusual for the Brotherhood to bring in tens of thousands of dollars on a regular basis, with their larger sales amounting to what would be half a million dollars today. They were living the dream, spreading the psychedelic gospel and making a fortune doing it. And by 1967, less than a year after formally establishing the Brotherhood, their drug operation expanded from dealing to include smuggling. They began moving drugs across state lines and even over the Pacific into Hawaii. Using their new wealth, they bought a yacht named the Afia, which they captained back to the mainland, packed to the gills with marijuana. 
Drug peddling was no longer their side hustle. It was their full-time occupation. And it was no office job. Trafficking narcotics across state lines was a federal offense with severe consequences. Getting caught would inevitably send an individual brother to jail, but it also risked the entire operation being uncovered. If authorities caught on, dozens of members would be sent to prison, ending the peaceful way of life the brothers so passionately cultivated and tearing apart the families many of them had started in the commune. Everything was at risk, their freedom, their families, and their burgeoning drug empire. Knowing this, the brothers took careful measures to protect themselves. In one particularly elaborate scam, they posed as a movie company and filled film canisters with LSD. Any authorities that stopped them would be wary of opening the canisters, since exposing the film to light would ruin it. They almost always drove unassuming VW campers on smuggling routes, bringing their girlfriends and children along for the haul to make it appear that they were just a family out for a road trip. The brothers also made frequent trips to Mexico, where they purchased marijuana in bulk and smuggled it back to the U.S., stowed in the hubcaps of their cars. To assure they were never caught, they paid off the Tijuana police chief, putting him on retainer for $30 a month. In exchange, the brothers casually drove over the border with thousands of dollars worth of marijuana. They pooled their profits together to create a fund for bailing members out of jail when they were busted by police, a common occurrence on drug runs. And when bail wasn't enough, they hired their own team of attorneys dedicated to defending them in court. But as the money poured in, it was becoming more and more difficult to funnel it through discreet channels without catching suspicion. They needed a front, a side business to launder the cash. Johnny decided that a metaphysical bookstore was the perfect facade. In 1967, they bought an abandoned shop right off the Pacific Coast Highway and called it Mystic Arts World. This was more than just a bookstore. It was an all-around bohemian destination, a psychedelic emporium that sold everything from smoking paraphernalia and incense to handmade clothing. Johnny insisted that Mystic Arts also be used to give back to the community. So they used the influx of money to fund a vegetarian soup kitchen and an art gallery that featured local artists. Mystic Arts became a haven for Laguna's growing young hippie population, their own version of Haight-Ashbury. And soon, more people wanted to be enlightened by the Brotherhood than ever before. Which meant their product was in demand. But this wasn't all good news. As the Brotherhood's reputation for dealing pure, high-quality drugs spread, small-time dealers would claim to be a part of the group, even though their product was inferior. This began damaging the brothers' good name on the street. Soon, the Brotherhood's philosophy of inclusion in psychedelics turned into one of exclusion as they struggled to shut out copycats. They needed to defend the reputation of their product, even at the expense of their ideals. Popularity proved to be problematic yet again when young fans began flocking to Mystic Arts World, smoking joints out on the front steps. This drew unwanted attention to what the Brotherhood intended to be a discreet money laundering operation. In truth, by 1967, the Brotherhood was no longer an intimate collective that could fly under the radar. They had amassed a true following, and the local police started to take notice. 
officers began to prowl around the shop and the brothers' homes in the canyon. They needed to be on their guard. At this point, the Brotherhood had over 100 members, all of whom could be implicated in a police crackdown. Travis Ashbrook, one of the Brotherhood's original members, remembered the period more for its chaos than its successes. He later recalled, It just turned into something way bigger than we thought. We weren't organized crime. We were unorganized crime. But Johnny thrived in the anarchy. He couldn't contain his excitement over how far they'd come in such a short time. About once a week, Johnny called Timothy Leary to give him reports like, Hey, Uncle Tim, we've just moved half a ton of grass and we've got some righteous acid. Although Leary enjoyed playing the part of long-distance advisor to the Brotherhood, he didn't really take the group seriously. Johnny even invited Leary to visit the operation in Laguna, but instead of taking the offer up himself, Leary sent his oldest son Jack to see if Johnny was really building the psychedelic empire he claimed. When Jack Leary arrived in 1967, he wasn't disappointed. In the back of Mystic Arts World, in a room thick with incense and marijuana smoke, he found Johnny and a few other brothers counting stacks of $1,000 bills. According to one version of the story, Jack took one of the $1,000 bills and lit it with a nearby candle. As the bill sizzled in the flame and curled into black ash, the brothers just watched. No one batted an eye. When Jack told his father what he'd done to the money, Leary offered to repay the Brotherhood the $1,000. But Johnny refused. He said it was a great thing he did. Very enlightening. Leary was floored. Not only was the Brotherhood as wildly successful as Johnny claimed, but they had adhered to their values and philosophy. Leary decided it was high time to visit the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and see what was happening in the church he'd helped conceive. But his motives weren't necessarily altruistic. He was desperate. Leary had just been thrown out of the lush mansion at Millbrook Estate after his residency had turned into a drug-fueled frenzy of parties and arrests. Finding himself with nowhere else to go, in the winter of 1967, Leary finally took up Johnny's invitation to visit Laguna. The prodigal father was coming home, and with him, bringing a new age of enlightenment, one that would ultimately lead to the Brotherhood's downfall. Thanks again for tuning in to our Cults and Kingpins Summer of 69 crossover special. Join us next week as we continue our journey into the Brotherhood's psychedelic underworld and explore how growing egos within the group and the end of the 60s led to its slow descent. Remember, part two of The Brotherhood of Eternal Love will only be available on the Kingpins feed. To find it, simply search Kingpins on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with new episodes of Cults and Kingpins next week. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify. 
or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults and Kingpins were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the ParCast Network. They're produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode is written by Alex Garland and stars Greg Polson, Vanessa Richardson, Kate Leonard, and Howell Hargett.